0: This morning, we are going to examine what the Bible says about the government, or what we could call politics, so all room for offending everyone. Um, I, I don't think, I'm going to read the passage before us in just a minute, but I don't think I need to go through all the reasons why this topic is important, but I, I do want to say a few just kind of preamble comments before I get into this, um, a, as my introduction and before we read our text, which is going to be out of First Peter 2. So the first thing I want to say as we approach this text and as we approach this topic is that we don't want to think about this well because this is necessarily the most important thing in our lives but because as Christians we desire to bring every part of our life into conformity with Christ and that includes what we could call our political lives. Every corner, every uncharted spot of of our hearts needs to be touched by Christ. And that includes how we think about the government, how we think about our governing authorities. And maybe because this is such a heated issue, there has been a tendency either to overemphasize or to underemphasize this topic and to not speak about it because we're so concerned about offending people or getting into arguments, and we haven't actually done the deep work of discipleship in this area. And so I actually think it's a very needed topic to speak about. Um, to put this another way, the temptation is to me- either make our faith partisan or to privatize it. To either make our faith partisan or to privatize it. And I'm increasingly convinced that we need to do more, not less, in terms of political discipleship, as we could call it. Second, it's evident that we have to do more in this realm because I've stopped counting the number of conversations that I've had either with pastors or with those in the congregation. Uh, in different congregations, who are having problems with their church over this issue or having problems with other Christians over this issue. It seems that the years from 2016 to 2021 brought to the forefront many of the fears, um, many of the beliefs that we hold very dearly, and Christians are dividing over some of these issues. One pastor friend said recently, people in our day will leave a church over politics before they will leave politics for a church. I think that's very true. Contributing to this reality is that many people spend 10 to 20 hours a week, I don't know if this is true of you all, but many people spend 10 to 20 hours a week being discipled by political pundits on cable news or by social media, and we get 30 to 40 minutes of a sermon, maybe once, maybe twice a year, maybe not even that, to actually talk about this issue. And it it seems like we're being formed almost more by these political pundits in terms of how we think about this issue rather than the scriptures themselves. So we want to always return to the scriptures. The final thing I want to say before I read the text, just in terms of a preamble, is we need to think well about this because we have a tendency, and this might go a little bit against what you've heard sometimes, we have a tendency to spiritualize our faith and forget that Jesus came as the king. We have a tendency to spiritualize our faith and forget that Jesus came as the king. It's very popular to say Jesus was not political, but I would argue that's just flat out wrong. We just need to understand what he means by political or why he came in such a political way. For example, King Herod, the puppet of Rome when Jesus was born in Jerusalem, didn't go out and kill the baby boys in Bethlehem because a new spiritual leader had been born. He wanted to get rid of him because a new king had been born, and he understood a new king had been born. But Jesus will also not let you fit him into your political box. He breaks many of our categories. Eugene Peterson uh, said it this way, and I think this quote is very good and it summarizes it very well. The gospel of Jesus Christ is more political than anyone imagines, but in a way that no one guesses. It's more political than anyone imagines, but in a way that no one guesses. So that's my kind of awkward preamble. I can tell you all are paying attention because we're talking about politics. That's good. So let's now turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, and we're going to read this text before us and see what Peter has to write to us about our governing authorities. So it's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Peter writes, Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, today I'm going to take two passes at this text. I actually learned that from Jared. This is the first time I've ever done this, so you all know what I'm talking about. I'm going to take two passes at the text, and we're going to look at two basic points that we learn from this text. First, Christians are called to submit to governing authorities, and second, Christians are called not to rely on governing authorities. So first, Christians are called to submit to governing authorities, and second, Christians are called not to rely on governing authorities. And when I say I'm taking two passes, for those of you who haven't heard of this, when I get to the end of the text, that means I'm not done. I'm going back, and I'm going to do it again. So don't get really excited when I get to the end very early, okay? So let's look at these in order. First, Peter tells us to submit to governing authorities very clearly in verses 13 through 14. Peter says, submit to every, there's the command, submit to every human authority. And then he defines who every governing authority is. Whether to the emperor as supreme authority or to governor. So both to higher and lower authorities. So to submit means to voluntarily yield to the authority of another. And Peter says to do so to those all the way up high and those all the way down low and everywhere in between. You submit to all of them. That means as Americans, as people of the state that we live in, whatever that state might be, that we submit to our president, higher authorities, our vice president, higher authorities, and our local representatives. Your governor, Kate Brown, your mayor, Ted Wheeler, your attorney general, your secretary of state. And honestly, some of those names might make you a little bit squeamish. Some of those names might make you a little bit uncomfortable. And we might be thinking about, well, don't you remember what they did during this or that? Don't you remember when they did this? Don't you remember when they didn't do something, when they should have done something? Don't you remember what they said here? But we have to remember the context that Peter writes into here. He writes to those in Asia Minor who are living under the rule of Rome. And while there might be a tendency for us to complain about our own governing authorities, I think it's fair to say that Rome was way worse. Way worse. We know from historical records, from archaeology, how Rome treated those who went against their will. And it was not pretty. I don't want to get too gory here, but their methods of execution were beyond belief. You can Google this, and some of them I won't read here, but I'll just mention a few. Sewing people inside of animals. Burying people alive. And then the most famous one that we all know, crucifixion. That was a Roman method of death. We wear crosses, have you ever thought about this? We wear crosses around our neck and not stones because Jesus was killed on a Roman cross because the Jewish form of execution was through stones. We don't wear a stone because Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross. It was Rome that killed our Savior. It was Rome, according to Christian tradition, that beheaded Paul. It was Rome that crucified upside down the man who wrote these words and he said, submit to them. Submit to them. So if, the, if we want a get-out-of-jail-free card, like I don't like how our government's going right now, I don't like what they're doing, I'm sorry, but this text doesn't offer us one in terms of the context. Our situation, by almost every standard, is much more peaceable, even in this time, than the one that Peter writes into. So we must ask ourselves, how are we doing? How are we as Christians doing on this point? Would your neighbors say that you are submissive citizens? Would those watching your social media feed say, that is a submissive citizen? Are the governing officials happy to have you as citizens? Are they pleased with you that you probably don't know you, but if they did know everything that you think and say and do, would they be happy? But Peter goes even further He says in verses 14, 15 that we are to do good. Do good. Look look at what he says here. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. And by doing good, I'm not sure he means private acts of purity. I actually think what he means here is public deeds that would be recognized by the larger society. Public deeds of good. Uh, Martin Luther, who certainly has a way with words, said it this way, and I'll explain the quote after I I say the quote. Christians are like manure. There's more to the quote. When they are gathered all into one place, they stink, but when they spread out, they do some good. And what he's getting at, he's not saying it's bad for Christians to gather in Christian assemblies. He loves that. But what he's saying is that Christians have a tendency to cloister together and to forget the world. And he says, you need to be more like manure and spread out more and do some good in the world. You need to do public good. And Peter agrees, and he says Christians should be characterized by those who do public good. We not only submit to the governing authorities, but we do good in our cities and our local provinces and our states and our country. So again, we have to ask ourselves, how are we doing on this point? As the body of Christ... Let's be those who do public good. Let's be for our neighborhoods. Let's be for our schools, our local parks, our swim teams, our softball leagues. Go to events, get to know people, serve, participate in politics, government, arts, agriculture, sports, business. Think about ways that you can make your area more just and humane and safe. Those are actions of public good. Now, everyone's in different life circumstances and life situations, so it might look different for all of you, but we should all be considering both as a body together and as individuals how we can do public good. I was challenged in studying this myself as whether our community, maybe our neighborhood, would notice if we even left. Would your neighborhood notice if you left? Would this neighborhood notice if this church left? are Christians characterized by the, as those who do public good. Finally, in verse 17, Peter says to honor the emperor. So submit, do good, and honor the emperor. Maybe Peter recognized that we can, there can be a begrudging and resenting submission and doing good, but to honor someone even raises the bar more. It's not just submit and be like, fine, I have to submit, I don't like this at all. But he says, honor them. To honor someone means to give them special recognition, to regard them with respect. So how do we honor people? We compliment them. Now think about governing authorities. How are we doing on this? We compliment them. We treat them with respect. We are patient. We ask questions before we accuse. We seek to understand before we condemn we overlook mistakes. We forgive. Are we honoring our governing authorities? And as Christians, we have to be different from the world in this way. We don't necessarily need to go around rebuking other people for not doing that. But what if in just in conversations, if you threw in honoring comments about our governing authorities as these topics came up? How would that change our conversations in terms of how we speak and even think about these things? Maybe it was Tim Keller who said many times you have to act before your heart goes that way. Sometimes we just need to start doing this and then our heart might follow. No matter how much we disagree with elected officials, we are called to honor them, to submit to them. We are called to do good. So we've seen these three things that Christians are called to do, but I want to back up and say why, because the text actually answers why we're supposed to do these things. Why are we supposed to do these things? He gives at least, I had four reasons, but I boiled it down to two. Two reasons why we're supposed to do this. He says we are to do this because God has appointed them to promote order. God has appointed them. We see this in 2.13 14 again. Submit to every human authority because the reason... Because of the Lord. Mm, That's not clear. But then he goes on to say, these rulers punish those who do evil and praise those who do what is good. So when he says because of the Lord, it's likely that he's saying the same thing as Paul in Romans 13. We submit because no authority exists outside of God's will. No authority exists outside of God's will. And why would God appoint some of these people? And you're probably wondering, why? Why would he? Well, the text answers it. God uses these authorities to order society. Yes, not perfectly. But he uses them to order our society to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Let me say this very clearly. An institution does not have to be Christian to do good. An institution does not have to be Christian to do good. God blesses the world consistently through non-Christian institutions. He does through so through families, schools, counselors, businesses, fill in the blank. And we should be the first to joyfully support all these things for the benefit of all humanity. In light of the frustration with our political parties, our governors, whoever it might be, Some Christians like to only critique America, to identify it with Babylon, the evil city. However, what many fail to realize as they voice these complaints is that they're doing so in the midst of a comfortable house on well-paved roads with working traffic lights and hopefully not robbed along the way as you go about your daily tasks, grocery stores that work, all these different things that are working. We have all of these things because we have a government. So as you voice these complaints, you're actually benefiting from the government. We're benefiting from the government almost every minute of our lives, just in terms of what we're doing, in terms of people who have devoted themselves to order our society. Therefore, while it's popular to only see death in America it's misguided we have to understand that the government has a regulatory function in our lives and that is good a government is better than no government have you ever been to a country that doesn't have a government it's not good government orders our lives and order is better than anarchy second we are to do these things because it's part of our witness it's part of our witness So the first reason was because the Lord has appointed them to to promote order. Second, it's part of our witness. See 2.15. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Why do you do good? Because it's part of your witness. Usually when we think about witnessing, we only think about sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And that is primary and that is important. But what Peter is saying is that's not complete. We also must do good as part of our witness. We must adorn the message with public actions. Tim Keller again once mentioned, when the world sees Christians only evangelizing, they only see us increasing our tribe, increasing our market share, and increasing our power. Because that is what the world does. You're just trying to get more people in, to have more money, to have a bigger crowd, to have more market share. Now, that's not true, but without the Holy Spirit, that's what they think. But if they see us evangelizing and caring for the poor and laying our life down and promoting racial justice and seeking the betterment of our community, then the preaching of the gospel will be more powerful. Part of our witness is doing good. He says you will silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. So that's pass one. What are we called to do? We're called to submit to governing authorities. We're called to do good. We're called to honor the emperor. But there's also other things that this text says. And it might seem like these go against what I've just said, but they actually somehow come together. Both of these things are true. This text also says we are not to rely upon them or give them ultimate loyalty. We are not to ultimately rely upon governing authorities or give them our ultimate loyalty. They are servants of God, and we must obey the king of kings above the kings of the earth. Two points show this. First, Peter says governing authorities are only creatures. They're only creatures. This is hard to see in the English text, but in 2.13, Peter says, We submit to every human Human, you see that? Human authority. In Greek, that's creaturely, created authority. Now, that might not seem like a big deal to you, but you have to remember, Roman emperors were deified and worshipped. They were called gods. Remember in Mark 12, when the coin was brought to Jesus, on that coin, there was the son of God, Augustus, Caesar Augustus, the son of God. And Peter says, no, They're only creatures. They're only created beings. And we're tempted to think, well, that was Rome's problem. That's not our problem. We don't treat our president, our vice president, our governing authorities, our mayor, like they're gods. Well, next time you walk into the U.S. Capitol, look up and look at the painting above you. Next time you go to Washington, D.C., above you is the painting called The Apotheosis of George Washington. Apotheosis means the elevation of someone to divine status. And on this painting, Washington sits enthroned above every other name and he is bringing peace and order to all realms of the government. Maybe we're not so much unlike Rome in this way. And Peter, by calling them created authorities, they wouldn't be reading this, but Christians would get it, He knocks them down to size. Submit to them, but remember, they're creatures. So we submit to them, but we don't worship them. We don't become feverishly excited about them. We don't hang on their every word. We don't think that all things are ending when our candidate is not elected. Because they are only creatures. They'll be here, and then they'll be gone. Psalm 146, 3 through 5, is worth quoting here. The psalmist says, don't trust in princes. So Peter says, submit to them, and the psalmist says, don't trust in them. Don't trust in them. Don't trust in the Son of Man who cannot save. They can't save you. Submit to them, but they can't save you. Remember who they are. He goes on to say, when his breath leaves him, this ruling authority, this prince, he returns to the ground. On that day, his plans die. He had plans to do something. When he dies, it's over. Happy, blessed is the one whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. He, the Lord, executes justice for the exploited. Notice what he's saying. Not the princes. He executes justice for the exploited. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord frees the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are oppressed. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord protects resident aliens. All these things these governing authorities are promising that they will do. The psalmist says no. The Lord will do that. The Lord helps the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the way of the wicked. The Lord, he reigns forever, not them. You must worship him and him alone. Governing authorities are not ultimate, so do not treat them like they're ultimate. If you find yourself getting really passionate about governing authorities, you're treating them as ultimate. And you can't do that. They will not establish justice. Your candidate won't in an ultimate sense. They will not help the fatherless and the widow. They might make some progress or they might reverse some progress. But in an ultimate sense, they won't do that. They will not frustrate the way of the wicked in an ultimate sense. They cannot bring in the new creation because they're only creatures. Earthly kingdoms will come And go. Only God's kingdom will stand forever. So we submit to them. But they're only creatures. Even as Christians. We are tempted to think. One party will bring ruin and injustice. And the other one will bring peace. But what are we saying? They won't ultimately bring peace. Neither of them will. Only the Lord can do that. So we need to get our priorities straight. Second. Not only are they only creatures, but we don't rely on them because we are free and we have a higher loyalty. We see this in verse 16. Submit as free people. What an interesting comment, right? Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. In Matthew 17, you remember this story. Peter comes to Jesus and asks, Should we pay the temple tax? And Jesus asks Peter a question. He says, Do kings tax their sons or their citizens? And Peter rightly says, They're citizens, not their sons. And Jesus says, Then the sons are free. And then he says to Peter, Oh, I'm gonna give you a coin, go pay it. So as to not give offense. You don't need what Jesus just said about the temple tax? You don't have to pay it. You're free. You're a son of the king. Christians, you don't have to pay taxes because you're free. But guess what? To not give an offense, go ahead and do it. So we submit as free people. We don't submit because they are so great. We submit because we are sons of the king and the king has told us to submit to them. That's subversive because as Rome was telling them to honor and worship us, Christians were saying, I will only honor you because a greater king tells me to do so. That's the only reason. Not because you say so. We don't give taxes because they say so, but because God says so. Then, in verse 17, Peter presses in on this point even more. He says, honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. You might think, well, that's not very subversive, but look closer. In a time, as we've already explained, Where the emperor required the most honor. The most honor. There's a pyramid system. And there's still very much a pyramid system. What does Peter do? Peter says honor the emperor and honor all. He flattens the pyramid. He says treat the emperor like you treat the slave that you meet walking down the street. Treat them all the same. You honor everyone and honor him. The emperor. Yes, honor him, but honor all. But not only that, in the middle, notice there's honor, honor, and then there's middle, there's two things. What does he say in the middle? He says to love the brothers and sisters and to fear God. Christians have ordered allegiances. You have a special place in your heart for God and the brothers and sisters and everyone else you honor. Yes, you honor them. Don't discount that. But there's a special place in your heart for the church and for God himself. Love and fear. And for the rest, you honor them. Love and fear are a heightened sense, right? It's, you give them more of your loyalty in that sense. We never yield to the government that which has already been claimed by God. And we say that very clearly. We never yield to the government That which has already been claimed by God. That is why we have examples such as Daniel, who defied the Babylonian Empire. Nathan, who critiqued and confronted Israel's kings. John the Baptist, who spoke against kings here in marriage. John the Apostle, who was exiled to the island of Patmos by Rome. And the list could go on and on and on. Hey, I thought it said submit to them. Not when it goes against God's law. You don't submit to them anymore. Because we have a higher king. But the application of that is not as easy as you might think. Yeah, those principles are clear. But this messiness of it all became clear when the government here in America told churches to shut down during COVID. We have two commands in scripture. Meet together and submit to the governing authorities. And they came and they went, boom, what are we supposed to do? And that's where it gets difficult. Some Christians responded it was wrong for churches to close their doors, while others said this was part of the government's jurisdiction, or you could throw in masks for this one. What are we supposed to do? There is room for disagreement here, but I think this particular decision did fall under the government's assigned authority there to promote order, peace, and life in our society. And in most states, as far as I recognize, they were not singling out churches and shutting only churches down. But, hear me rightly, we only ask that question, or we primarily ask that question, better said, not because we're Americans, but because we're Christians. You don't ask the question about freedom because you're American first and foremost. You ask the question because you say, is this going against God's law? Because he is the one we ultimately serve. So we must compare their commands versus God's command and say, what should I do here? There is room for disagreement. There is room for disobedience even at times if it goes against God's law. Let me put this very bluntly. You have more in common with a Chinese, African, South American brother or sister halfway across the world than with a neighbor who votes the same way you do. Because you love the brothers and sisters and you fear God and you honor everyone else. And this brings us to the gospel. What kind of ruler are people looking for? What kind of ruler are people looking for? One who is kind. One who is just. One who is wise. One who is gracious. One who is honorable. One who puts our interest above their own. One who is a wonderful counselor. An everlasting father. The mighty God. The prince of peace. One who will bring prosperity that will never end. Don't they all promise that? We're going to bring prosperity that will never end. And the psalmist says, no, you won't. Only one can do that. Peter bases all of these commands on the example and substitution of Christ. Just a few verses down. In 1 Peter 2.22, just look down the text. Notice what he says about Jesus. He says, he did not commit sin. And no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. What is he doing? He's submitting. He's innocent. He's completely innocent, and he didn't even speak back. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the governing authorities. No. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He knows there's a higher judge, so he can submit himself to the governing authorities. In his own death, the cross is our primary example, isn't it? He submit himself to the Roman government and says, I will submit to what you say, but I'm going to actually overcome in the midst of that. And then it goes on to say, as the good king, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live to righteousness for by his wounds you have been healed. What kind of king does that? What kind of, which ruler has laid down their life completely for you? Only Christ, which ruler, has healed you completely. For we were all like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We have a ruler unlike any other. You have one shepherd. You have one overseer. You have one king. And to him, and to him alone, does your ultimate allegiance reside. No one else can claim that spot. So in conclusion, how are we to think about politics as Christians? About the government? Let me answer that question by zooming in on America for a minute. By zooming in on America and tell two different stories about America that might get me into trouble. But I think they're good stories of America and I think they're helpful for us to think about. I actually heard this A few times, but most recently I've heard this from D.A. Carson. This is, let me tell two stories about America. So first, America began with the coming of the founding fathers who landed on Plymouth. They wanted freedom from English oppression, who kept on insisting on taxation without representation and stunting their religious freedom. They, the first settlers, were amazingly resilient and even heroic. The first Thanksgiving, they lost a third of their people because of the weather. Though they got into some skirmishes, they also befriended the Native Americans and began to expand in numbers and in different colonies. They were certainly guilty of their share of sins, but they were trying to produce a better society. Eventually, they built a constitution, and the first type of democracy where you have different sectors of the government restricting power. No branch of government was to become too powerful. It It was a unique thing at the time. Slavery was eventually eradicated through America's bloodiest war, the Civil War, giving evidence of the ability to reform itself. Even America can reform itself, as they realize they've made mistakes along the way. Twice in the 20th century, America came to the aid of Europe, and in many respects became a responsible superpower. That's American history number one. Now, American history number two. Long before the Europeans arrived, there were natives living on this land. When the pilgrims arrived, there was a bloody back and forth between them and the Native Americans. Eventually, the Europeans stole most of the land and the Native Americans were thrust into small, unproductive lands. Though the Constitution asserted the rights of all, African Americans were considered three-fifths of the value of a white person. They were also enslaved, and Americans paid for that in the Civil War, and even that didn't end it. Jim Crow persisted for another century and a half, and we are still seeing the struggles on the streets today. Women were regularly considered second-class citizens and still some struggle in the workforce today. America was also the first world power to drop an atomic bomb on Japan. America did come to the aid of Europe in the World Wars, but we got into the quagmire in Vietnam and have sent off our sons and daughters to fight in wars. Which history is true? The point is both of them are, because the rulers of America throughout the centuries are creatures, they're creatures. Absolutizing the good and absolutizing the bad is something we cannot do. Like every nation, we have a mixed history, don't we? And we have to recognize that. As Christians, we have to recognize that this is why Peter says in this letter that Christians are exiles, sojourners, and pilgrims on this land. So how are Christians to think about politics? In America right now, for the good, we can be very thankful. We can be thankful for all the freedoms that we enjoy, that others across the world do not enjoy, and even across history have not enjoyed. But we also lament. We also lament. Our history is far from perfect. Our present is far from perfect. And something and someone greater is coming. And this land is just not our hope. It is not our hope. So we are thankful, but it's tempered. We lament, but it's filled with hope. We do this because we recognize we already have a king. And our main task is to witness to him and say he is bringing a government where there will be peace and justice and no more tears forever and ever. The government here on earth can remain in the meantime. And we can cheer for it to do good. But our destiny lies elsewhere. Let's pray that this might be so. Oh God, we need your grace and your help in this and so we ask that your Holy Spirit would continue to fill us so that we might do your will. Father, we thank you that Jesus was sent on our behalf. We thank you that he was sent as a substitute for our sins and that it's only by believing in him that we are right with God. And so we pray that everyone we meet might know the reign and the substitution of Jesus Christ and that we would be good citizens who recognize the good that the government does, but also that we would not get caught up into the whirlwind of thinking that that is all there is. We pray that this would be so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.